So a couple of days ago, we celebrated a, a great feast, the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. And it got me thinking about my days in seminary. Seminarians have an All Saints party every year where we dress up as saints. Why do seminarians do that? Well, because seminarians are dorks, obviously. <laughs> so we dress up as saints. And, you know, one year I was, I was St. Ignatius of Loyola, one of my favorite saints. I had just had a knee injury, so it was easy for me to, to imitate him. I didn't have to fake my limp as I walked around on my crutch. It also gave me an excuse to wear my cassock, which I'm always grateful for. And I'll give you some other examples of saints that guys dressed up, dressed up as. Not so, not so common, not, not so traditional saints. But for example, one seminarian, given the feast of, of the chair of St. Peter, he decided to dress up not as St. Peter, but as the chair of St. Peter. <laughs> so he made this device where he could wear a chair, and he walked around saying he was the chair of St. Peter. Another would dress up as the, one of the stylites. You've heard of the stylites? They were early monks or hermits in the beginning of the church. That word translate to, translates to pillar saints. So they were pillar saints. They would just go up on top of these pillars and just stay up there and be there for the rest of their lives and really just pray and just eat and pray and fast and read the Bible and preach from the top of these pillars. So you may be asking, how did a seminarian dress up as a stylite? Well, he took a 12-foot a ladder and set it up in the middle of the cafeteria where he, we had this event, and he climbed on top of it with his Bible, and he just sat up there and read his Bible the entire party. <laughs> he, he showed real commitment to his role. And one last one, a seminarian took the, the door off of his hinges from his bedroom and strapped it to his backpack and he wore the backpack, so he wore a door around the party. He was Saint Isidore. <laughs> Seminarians are dorks, I told you. Okay, why am I talking about this? It does have a little, have a little not entirely, not all of it, but it has a little bit to do with, what I, with my homily, which is this, the, the chair of St. Peter. The chair of St. Peter is, is really not about the papacy. A lot of people think it's about the papacy. By extension it is, of course, but it's primarily not. It's primarily about Peter himself. He went to Antioch just three years after our Lord died and rose and ascended into heaven, and he preached a sermon there, perhaps on February, February the 22nd. And that was his first sermon in Antioch. He, found, he, he founded a church in Antioch, and he stayed there for seven years. Then after that, he went on to Rome, and he preached a sermon there on January the 18th, and that was his first sermon in Rome. He founded the church in Rome, and he stayed there for 25 years until his martyrdom. Now, those two dates, January the 18th and February the 22nd, they became the two feasts of the two different chairs of St. Peter, the chair of St. Peter in Rome on January the 18th, and chair of St. Peter in Antioch on January, February the 22nd. Now they've been combined into just one on February 22nd. But there were originally two, and there, was, there, were so, there were two for thousands of years until just seven years ago. This starts to reveal something about St. Peter. What launched St. Peter in these endeavors of going around and founding these churches? 
And what, what was he preaching? What was he saying when he went around doing these things? St. Leo the Great, commenting, St. Leo the Great, just 400 years after St. Peter, commenting on the chair of St. Peter, he said, we ought to celebrate the chair of St. Peter with no less joy than the day of his martyrdom. So first of all, to celebrate his martyrdom with joy, hopefully we're familiar with that. It, it may be upside down to the world because we're celebrating the fact that he was not just died, not, not just that he died, but that he was killed, he was brutally killed, crucified, perhaps crucified upside down. So not only we celebrate his martyrdom, because that, that's of course the day he went to heaven, the, the day he went to glory with great joy, but also to celebrate his chair with no less joy. Well, what was it about the person of Peter himself? What did he see that totally transformed his life? That totally transfigured his life, we can say. Of course, we get a glimpse of it in the, the account of the transfiguration that we just heard. Jesus called Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and they went up to this mountain, and he, Jesus himself was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This is three years into Jesus' public ministry. He'd been walking around with Peter, James, and John and the other disciples for three years, roughly. And so they had gotten to know him very well. They, were, they basically lived with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Of course, not all the way, but just about for three years. They, got, they had gotten to know him pretty well. They had this really intimate knowledge of him, this really intimate relationship with him. And it began, we heard in the beginning, the third chapter of Mark's gospel, that Jesus called to him those whom he desired. Jesus called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. That was the call of the apostles. Jesus calling those whom he desires. I put that verse on my, the back of my ordination card. Because that's true for me. Jesus desires me. And that's also true for each and every one of you. Jesus desires you and calls you to himself. And so we can answer his call and go to him. Okay, so now three years later, after three years of living together, basically, now Jesus calls Peter, James, and John up the mountain. And they had come to know him as a great preacher, as a great friend, as a great organizer, all these great skills, attributes. And then, of course, some supernatural gifts that he had, they had seen him heal people and, and make the paralytic walk and heal leprosy and all the rest, make the blind see. So they knew he was someone special. He also talked about all these prophecies that would be fulfilled. He knew there was something different about him. But now on top of the mountain, Jesus pulls the veil on himself. The veil that's covering his divinity, he lifts that. And now that his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, get a glimpse into his divinity. And how does Peter respond after he sees this? He says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. It is good that we are here with you. 
And then he doesn't want to rush out of there. He says, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's stay here a while. Let's set up our tents, let's set up our camp and just stay here and be here together and enjoy one another's company. This all has been summarized, perhaps we can say this, it has been summarized in Jesus' word words recorded in John's gospel when Jesus said, Remain in me as I remain in you. As the Father loves me, so I also love you. Remain in my love. See, the whole Christian life is about this. It's about remaining in the love of God. You've heard me talk about relationship identity mission. We develop our relationship with God. We receive our identities of being his sons and daughters. And we're sent on mission. But we're so often so quick to go to mission. Okay, but what do I do? What do I do out in the world? We want to spend a lot more time in the relationship piece. This is the foundation. Developing a relationship with the living God. And even as we get to mission, the primary mission is not to go do stuff. Okay, it involves that. There's a time and a place for that. But the primary mission is back to relationship. Pope Benedict put it this way. Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. The encounter with a person, the person of Jesus, this is what Peter encountered. This is what happened to Peter. He encountered the person of Jesus, and Jesus revealed himself to Peter to be not just a good man, but to be man and God. And this sent Peter in a new decisive direction. Which direction? To the Father. Not to the world, to the Father. This is the new direction that he embarked upon. Now he went around sharing this with the world, with Antioch, with Rome and with us. I'm going to shift here to insert a plug here about Holy Rosary School, about our school. Because this is what our school is about. We just had a formation session with the teachers. We're doing a program through the Franciscan University of Steubenville. And we learned about the mission of Catholic schools. What is a Catholic school about? And in short, we can think of a Catholic school like this. The parish has a mission, the mission to save souls and to make disciples. That's the mission of our parish and of every Catholic church in the world. The school is an extension of the parish. It's called a parochial school. It's a school of the parish. So the mission of the school is the same mission as that of the parish, which is to save souls and make disciples. Pope Benedict, again, he put, he put it this way. First and foremost, every Catholic educational institution is a place to encounter the living God who in Jesus Christ reveals his transforming love and truth. This is the point of our school. 
to facilitate an encounter with the living God. And we do this primarily in three ways. We teach our students to pray. And it's in prayer that we can encounter God and entrust our lives to Him. We teach our students the commandments. You can ask any of the third graders and many of the other students in the school if they know the Ten Commandments. And they'd be able to recite it for you from one to ten. I wonder if you can do that. And also the virtues. We're doing a virtues curriculum from the University of, from the Sisters of Mary from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we have a virtue talk every week when the priest gives a virtue talk on the virtue of the week. And we sent that out to the parish. You can listen to those on the YouTube page. And there are lots of other things going on throughout the week where the students are not just learning the virtues, but also, more importantly, practicing them, exercising those virtues. And therefore, they're, they're becoming virtuous. They're becoming virtuous. Those, are, those acts are becoming habits. We are right now doing the virtue of fortitude, the cardinal virtue of fortitude. And that has many daughter virtues. We just covered industriousness this past week. And now this coming week, will cover magnanimity. I wonder if you know what those virtues are. So you can be learning with us. You can be learning with the school. This is what our, stu- this is what our students are learning. Now, no public school is going to teach any of this. Most Christian schools will not teach this. And perhaps, sadly, most Catholic schools won't teach this. This is the foundation, and this is in everything that we do at Holy Rosary. So if you're... If you're a family of school-age kids, I encourage you to consider coming to school, coming to Holy Rosary. Enrollment is open now. I said this at the 8 a.m. Mass at Holy Rosary Church, and afterwards a family came up to me and said, we just had a meeting with Father Flores this week, and all four of our kids from pre-K to fifth grade are going to start going to Holy Rosary next year. All right, great. Now, here's one last thing about the school, and this will be my bridge back to the homily for everyone. The Catholic schools have five marks, inspired by a supernatural vision, founded on a Christian anthropology, animated by communion and community, imbued with a Catholic worldview, and sustained by gospel witness. That second mark, founded on a Christian anthropology, this is really key. This is really key for everyone. What is a Christian anthropology? Well, what is anthropology? Anthropology is the understanding of the human person, who is man and who is woman. A Christian anthropology, a Christian understanding of the human person is going to be very different from a secular anthropology. A Christian anthropology can be summarized in three points. We're created in the image and likeness of God. This is the most important point. We're created in the image and likeness of God. God, who is love, created us in his image and likeness. That right away means that we are good. We're good. The second point, though, is also very important. We can't overlook this and we can't not take it seriously. We fell. Adam and Eve fell and we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. So we've inherited a fallen human nature. So the reality of sin and all of its impact, all of its effects in us, that's really key. 
But we don't stop there either. We go to the third point, which is the redemption of Christ. Jesus Christ, who is God, became man, revealed himself as God and man, took on a human nature, thus redeeming human nature, died on the cross, overcoming sin and death, resurrected from the dead, and ascended back to the Father. So now the, the rift between God and man has been bridged, has been reconciled in the person of Jesus. And now we can live in this reality too. But that second piece, the fall, sin, this is how the world wants us to define ourselves by. The world also recognizes sin. They don't call it that. They recognize the sin. But they say, no, no, that's not bad. That's good. Sin is good. Not only is sin good, but it's who we are. It's our identity. This is how deep the perversion goes. No. We are good. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And God has come to restore us to that condition. So we want sin out of our lives. Sometimes we know this intellectually because we're Catholics, we receive this formation, but we have a hard time integrating it into our being. Maybe we're more quick to relate to St. Paul when he says, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. That's fair. He did say that. But he also talked about love way more than he talked about sin. It's from St. Paul that we hear, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. Love never ends. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. St. John Chrysostom, writing about St. Paul, said this, The most important thing of all to Paul, however, was that he knew himself to be loved by Christ. Enjoying this love, he considered himself happier than anyone else. This is who St. Paul is. St. Paul is not, I don't do what I do, but I... I don't do what I want to do, and etc., whatever it is. That's not St. Paul. St. Paul is, above all else, he knew himself to be loved by Christ. Fully cognizant of having been created by God, who is love. Not underlooking his sinfulness. Enjoying the reality of being redeemed by God. That's Paul. That's Peter. And that's the invitation for all of us. It starts here. Not with going out doing stuff, but with seeing ourselves with a different lens. Father Paul Scalia, may remember him, the priest in, in, on the East Coast, he said, the purpose of everything in our faith is to change us from one degree of glory to another. We are to hear the words of the Father applied to ourselves. This is my beloved son. We just heard in the transfiguration, the father saying, this is my beloved son. This is to be for us to hear it applied to ourselves. The entire Christian life can be understood as the progressive knowing of ourselves as the father's beloved children. 
Did you hear that? It didn't say the entire Christian life can be understood as the progressive fixing of ourselves, as the progressive fixing of the world, as the progressive knowing of ourselves as the Father's beloved children. The project of the Christian life is to train our ears to hear these words and our hearts to accept them. This is hopefully what we're training our students at Holy Rosary. But more importantly, this is what God is training all of us to be. To hear the words, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. And to accept them in our hearts. And this brings us all back to the transfiguration. This is what St. Peter saw on top of the mountain. And now we've come to the top of this mountain, the summit of the Christian life. And Jesus is going to once again lift the veil a little bit, show himself not just to be man, but to also be God. And he's going to offer himself to us. And we can, in our mess, in our brokenness as we are, we can recognize that we are sons and daughters, and we can recognize that we're being called to glory, from one glory to another. And we can say to him, Rabbi, it is good that we are here.